Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 27th, 2020, and this is show number 816. Well, I sure, sure hope you all had a safe, if quiet, holiday this year. Thanks to the kindness of the Nocilla Castaways, I was able to really relax all week long. We've got a first-time review by Lewis Butler. You may know him as L. Butler in Slack. Then we've got a great review by Frank Petrie, followed by the ever-prolific podcaster Jill from the North Woods. Then Alistair Jenks is back in the house with a review of his own, and I even sneak in a little uh, tiny tip for you. And we've got the second half of Security Bits from last week, all about oblivious DNS over HTTPS, also known as ODO, and how it's going to dramatically increase all of our privacy. Well, I got to be on the Daily Tech News show on December 21st with Tom and Sarah and Roger. The news may be a bit stale by now, but we had a lot of fun talking about a couple of odd new phone inventions like the OnePlus with a back that can change color and ZTE's underglass selfie camera that by all reports is pretty awful. I got to talk a bit about my experience with Apple Fitness Plus, then Tom put the SolarWinds breach in perspective by walking us through a Foreign Policy magazine article that walks through how much damage was done with a single data breach back in 2012. This one was all about figuring out who our spies were. Anyway, maybe that wasn't the fun part of the show, but it was a highly uh, informative episode. Check out Daily Tech News Show at dailytechnewsshow.com, or better yet, subscribe to it in your podcatcher of choice. All right, let's get started with our fabulous listener reviews. Hi, this is listener Lewis here to tell you about Geofency. Geofency is an application that does one thing, but it does it well, reliably, and simply. It is useful for me and probably for others. In short, what it does is let you create a geofence around any location and name it. Then it tracks when you enter or leave that location and how much time you spend there. You can view the data in the app or you can export it. There's a lot of customization in the export settings, including decimal hours and or hour, minute, seconds. It lets you set locations based on map pins, addresses, a contact, an eye beacon, or even just latitude and longitude. I have used it for years because I need to track my time on site with clients for billing. But you could use it for anything where you want to keep track of how much time you spend in a location or how often you go there. How much time do you spend on grocery shopping? How much time do you spend at the dog park? It also allows me to view a location for a month or an arbitrary time period and see the total time, as well as ignoring events that are under a certain threshold. For example, one office I go to is along a route I drive frequently, so I have the app set to ignore anything under five minutes, which will account for my being stuck at a traffic signal twice. There is a preference that allows tracking other areas, quote, significant areas, end quote, that you can go to often but have not named. For example, I have a monthly doctor's appointment and the location of the doctor's office shows up in my exported data. The only issue with the app, and I suspect it is simply an issue with the way that GPS reporting works on iOS, is that sometimes it misses an exit event, though I have only seen this for non-named locations. For example, I have an event in my exported data for a random address on the other side of town that I was at on July 1st, and that event is 4,009 hours long. The app is available for iOS and macOS and is currently $5. 
I have been using it for years and have paid for it once. Well, that was great, Lewis. I really appreciate your review. I've never had a job where I needed to bill my time by the hour, but Geofency sounds like the perfect app to give you the metrics you'd need to do that. I think it meets the criteria that Tim Verporten set when he said, it does one thing and does it well. I sure hope you do more reviews soon, Lewis. I can't believe this was your first review out of the gate. This was great. When they made Frank Petrie, they broke the mold. This time, unlike some of his earlier contributions, which were meant more to entertain than inform, Frank brings us a product review that's very compelling. When I went to film school, it was drilled into your head that the most important component of any film video project was the audio. I also played in bands for years. I did some composing and recording in local studios, both songs and soundtracks for industrial videos. Ergo, sound quality has been important to me. I've assembled some homegrown 5.1 sound systems in the past, but now I live in the studio apartment, so that puts the kibosh on that. I have a great set of Audio Engine 2 Plus speakers that are great. As far as computational audio, I've been fascinated with binaural audio. You can look up examples on YouTube. When Apple released AirPod Pros and introduced spatial audio, I had to check it out. It's a good first step, but the weakest link in the chain to me is the tips on the AirPod Pros. They don't provide a good enough seal to make spatial audio fly. Others have resorted to memory foam. Good concept, except I've read of complaints that cleaning the earwax off of them is a task. Some have said that their black tips have turned a putrid green over time. Today's product review is of the marriage of both silicon and memory foam. They're called AirFoams Proactive from Chargen. Construction begins with the inner housing that has pressure release slots, which snap securely onto the AirPod Pros. The housing is covered with a sheath of silicon, which is enveloped with a layer of memory foam, which conforms to the shape of your inner ear. Finally, the whole tip is encased in an outer layer of silicon. The outer layer of silicon not only makes them easy to clean, but provides moisture resistance, a firm grip, and a solid seal for your inner ear. These are so logical that they're worthy of a palm slap. The AirFoam Pros block outside noise so effectively as to highlight the dynamic range of the AirPod Pros. The result is well-rounded sound reproduction. Granted, AirPod Pros don't have as much bass as I'd like, but I was a bass player. Most users will be more than satisfied with the sound quality. They make your experience immersive. I tried TV shows like Red Dwarf, Ted Lasso, spatial audio productions like On the Rocks, Greyhound, and music by Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. Not once was I disappointed. As for use, they snapped into place easier than Apple's tips. As far as support and proper use, instructions are fastened to the box. If that's not enough, 
There are several instructional videos on their site. They're a tad pricey, but worth it, especially when listening to spatial audio or Dolby Atmos. I'm more than happy with my purchase. I can't tell you how many times Apple's AirPod Pros would fall from my ear with a bit of movement like going down the sidewalk. I received an ideal fit rating from my iPhone tips only three times. I resigned myself that they were going to have to be regularly pressed back into my ear canals. These, on the other hand, have been a pleasure. I can sit at the coffee house and hear absolutely no outside noise while listening to a podcast, some music, or watching YouTube. And at home, it's a treat combined with my Apple TV. Whether the program or film has spatial audio, Dolby Sound, stereo, or simply mono. If you don't need or want the anti-moisture sweat feature, Chargen also makes a different version called AirFoam Pro Foam Ear Tips that don't have an outer silicon layer, merely foam rubber, and those come in six different colors. Either way, I feel these increase the value of my AirPod Pros multifold. Pricey? Yeah. A worthy investment? Undeniably. Well, the Chargen AirFoams Pro, <laughs> it's hard to say, those sound really terrific, Frank. I did buy some foam ear tips for my AirPods Pro, and I really don't favor them, so I think I'll give the Chargens a try. You, you sound like you have a lot more experience and understanding of some of the audio things than I do, and so I would certainly take your advice on this, so I think I'll go check those out. By the way, here's a fun fact to know and tell. There's a video on Chargen's website showing a guy jogging up some stairs on a beach going up above the uh, the ocean, you know, going up above the beach up these stairs, and that is actually in my town, right where I live. So, it was kind of uh, it was kind of cool to see that. So, now I definitely have to give the Chargen's a try. Hi, this is Jill from the North Woods. I wanted to do a review for the podcast app that I use to listen to all the podcasts. If you haven't heard, I'm quite the addict when it comes to podcasts. I subscribe to about 144 podcasts. I keep my eye on another 177 podcasts in case there's a topic I'm interested in. I tried a number of apps because I love podcasts so much. I wanted to make sure that this was great. After trying app after app after app, I couldn't find any of them I liked, but then I ran into iCatcher. I cannot begin to tell you how much I love this podcasting app. It is the ultimate app if you just want to create a playlist and have it play your podcast, or you want to be the ultimate control freak and control every aspect of what podcast you hear next. Now, of course, it has some basic features that are there, you know, settings about downloads, so that you can say how often should it check for new podcasts? Should it do it over Wi-Fi? Or should it use cellular activity? Should it limit itself between this time or that time? And so it has a lot of settings that you'd expect to have when it comes to a podcasting app. You can subscribe to a podcast just like normal, but you can also say that you want to have this podcast on your list, but you're not subscribed. You can also add a custom feed if you happen to just know the RSS feed so it's also great when testing your own podcast to make sure that the podcast uploaded just like you hoped it would. 
The Apple Watch can also act as a remote, which includes playlists, player options, loudness. You can also use Siri commands to skip ahead or jump in time. It's really great. You can also send podcasts to your watch. You have some custom options when it comes to what the screen looks like, how bright it is, how the badges work. I mean, I cannot begin to tell you that almost every aspect of the software has some kind of setting. And you can even change the art of the podcast in case you don't like the art that they picked, or maybe you don't want people to know what it is that you're listening to. Maybe it's something very political and you kind of want it just to be something very blank and generic. It will also interrupt the podcast if your GPS app has something to say. One of my favorite newer features is that it's always had the playback speed. I'm a 1.7x girl myself. I love listening to podcasts fast, but it has pitch correction on it. So it doesn't sound like everyone's a chipmunk. It has a sleep timer and you can also toggle continuous playback. You can also back up the database and restore it to a new device, which was great when I got my new iPhone. Everything was right there. You can also back up your phone list to iCloud or transfer media to another device. It will show your files in iTunes that will let you pull off those files onto your regular main computer. So these are all nice features, and it's great to see all the different things that you can do. It can import podcasts from other apps. It can also sync between devices through iCloud. And there's an experimental feature that will actually delete podcasts off your other devices if you listen to them. So that's really handy to have as well. And all these features are great, but it's where the playlist and the podcast options that make iCatcher so magical. If you create a playlist, you give it a name. You can also give it an icon. You can also decide if you want it to include a podcast by default or should it create an empty list and you will add podcasts to them? If you decide that you want to include it in the list, you can put the entire podcast in the list or just some episodes. Do you want the podcast to be downloaded? Do you want them to be streaming? Do you want to limit them by date? I have a playlist that only shows my podcast from the last seven days. That way I can stay current and older podcasts go into a backlog list and then you can decide if you want the podcast in your playlist to be under a certain time or over a certain time. And this is where it gets real nitpicky, but I tend to like the small five-minute podcasts when I get up in the morning because my attention span is that of a gnat. But by the time I'm doing housework or mowing my lawn, I like those podcasts that are over an hour long. I hate when I have little tiny podcasts and I'm doing housework and I keep switching topics all the time. It can protect the podcast downloads, which means it won't delete it off your phone when you're done listening to it. And sometimes I keep podcasts that either need a special attention from me or I want to remember what they said. Maybe I'm going to talk about a similar topic about that. So I can protect the podcast and then I have a player list that is just made up of protected podcasts that I want to listen to when I have the proper attention span to do so. It has many different sorting options so that you can sort the podcast. You can do it manually. You can have them play random podcasts. Of course, there's newest or oldest, shortest or longest, A to Z, Z to A. The file size is the largest or the smallest. And you can think about any sorting option you want and it will sort it in that option. And you can change it based on which list you're listening to. 
So sometimes I like to listen to the shortest podcasts again in the morning, but later I want to listen to them by date. You can also manually support your podcast either by giving them a rank priority so that your most important podcasts come first, or you can actually manually drop and drag your podcast into the right order. I will tell you that that's a step too far for me. I might be a bit of a control freak when it comes to my podcast, and because of how many I listen to, I have to be, but I don't manually sort, nor do I give them priority. Now, the next part is probably my favorite part about iCatcher is the podcast properties. So the first thing you see when you go into the properties of a podcast is you see the feed, you see what genre it is, you see where the file feed is located. You can also subscribe to things or or undo the subscription. You can also sort inside a particular podcast, which means each podcast itself is almost like a playlist all by itself. So if I want to listen to all the podcasts in this particular area, I can just do that. It has its own sort and everything else. This is what's really interesting about it to me is that I can also say that I want it to include or ignore podcasts based on certain words. It will look through key words in the title and either include or exclude the podcast based on those key words. For example, there's a podcast I listen to and they have a product I don't use. So every time they have a podcast episode that talks about that product, I'm not very interested in it. And so I exclude podcasts with that in the title from my downloads. But here's where it gets really great for me. You can adjust the artwork, as I mentioned, but you could also adjust the speed for each podcast. Many podcast apps will do speed, but you sort of set one speed and all the podcasts play at that particular speed. Some people talk faster than others. I can't even listen to my own podcast at any speed because I talk too fast already. But other people are very slow and very methodical, and I like to listen to their podcasts at 2x. I get to decide podcast by podcast how fast I listen to it. It also has beginning and end offsets, which means that if a person has a long intro song at the beginning of their podcast, I can skip the entire song. And if at the very end people will talk about ads, you can also have it cut short. So this will allow you to start it late, cut it short, and that makes it much more efficient, especially when you're listening to way too many podcasts like I am to get podcasts either started later or ended sooner. So this app is important to me and it's absolutely the thing I do the most. It is free in the iOS app store. There is no Android version of it, but you can leave a tip if you really like his work. And I've given him a number of tips just because, again, this app is so important to me. You can visit his website at joeisanerd.com. That's all one word. Or visit iCatcher in the App Store. So as you can see, this podcast listening app is great. It allows you to have ultimate control over your podcast. Or if you don't want to have control and you just want it to be a regular podcast app, it does that too. And it's a darn nice one, even without setting all the different things that you can do. I love it. I hope you enjoyed the review. We all know that we're all fans of podcasts, so I hope you really liked it. Well, let me give one quick correction. When Jill got iCatcher, it was free, so she tipped the developer more than once, like she said. Now it's a grand sum of $2.99. You know, Joe as a nerd would have lost money had he pr- had that price before with what Jill was uh, was giving him. 
You know, I had to laugh when Jill said even she isn't crazy enough to insist on manually reordering podcast, reordering podcasts for her playlist. And you know what? That's the one thing I do use all the time with my shows. I catch her sounds really cool, and for only three bucks, it's a no-brainer for me to give it a try. I'm an Overcast user right now, but unlike most people, I don't love it. I tolerate it. So I think I'm going to give iCatcher a try and see if maybe I like it better. Thanks for the great review, Jill. I hope you keep them coming. Before I go on other people's shows that have video, I like to take extra care to make sure everything looks really good. I launch Photo Booth on my Mac and I set the camera to be the one I'm going to be using. I use a Logitech C920 webcam, but to be honest, the one I had built into the LG 5K is just as good. For controlling the Logitech, I use the excellent menu bar, uh, web, uh, the menu bar app, Webcam Settings, and I apply a preset I've created to set white balance and exposure and zoom and to turn off the autofocus that always tells people you're on an, a Logitech C920 because it bounces in and out of focus. Anyway, Webcam Settings is perfect for that. This week, before going on Daily Tech News Show, I was setting up just as I've described, but I, didn't, I noticed that there was a glare on my glasses. I'm sure you've seen this lovely look and perhaps you've struggled with it yourself. In my case, the anti-reflective coating on my glasses was making the glare green, which was a really nice effect. I tried flipping my Mac from light mode to dark mode in system preferences, and the glare was reduced quite a bit, but it wasn't completely gone. My desktop was dark, Slack turned dark, Discord became very dark, but I had Safari open to be able to read the show notes. Now, Safari doesn't override the web developer's design, and so the, the colors are of the Google Sheet I was looking at were still white, even though the interface for Safari was dark. I installed a free extension for Safari called Dark Reader. This has been around a really long time, but anyway, I, I enabled that uh, extension, and Google Sheets instantly switched to white text on a dark background, and immediately the bright glare on my glasses was completely gone. No green glare. If you wear glasses and you're on video and would like a better look than your eyes being obscured by glare from your monitor for your coworkers or Zoom-based drinking partners, you might want to give the $4.99 Dark Reader for Safari extension a try. Hello, no silly castaways. It's Alistair Jenks here from New Zealand once again. I recently mentioned in the NoZillacast Slack that I use Text Expander to expand DMC embroidery cotton numbers to the official colour names. Alison asked why I did this, and when I explained, she put me on the hook for this contribution. In a nutshell, my wife Ellie designs her own cross-stitch patterns and then sells them. What follows is a description of how I use Serif's Affinity suite of products to go from the raw materials to the product we deliver. Ellie uses a Windows application called EasyCross, which runs in a VirtualBox VM. Now, before any keen cross-stitchers write in and tell me about Mac native software, she's tried it all, and none of it measures up for her. As much as I'd prefer she have native software, I do agree with her assessment. Once she has created and stitched a design, usually over a period of many weeks, I will see a clear sleeve of papers, including the pattern, left out somewhere I will see it, which tells me it's time to do what I do. I start with the outputs from EasyCross and the finished product itself. 
EasyCross prints the pattern with a key, but the key is rudimentary to say the least, so we only use the pattern in the final product. To get this into PDF format for easy printing, we use a freeware product called Qt PDF, which acts as a Windows printer driver, but creates a PDF. Did I mention I'd prefer a Mac native tool? What I then create consists of a new key with additional stitching information, a front cover for the packaging, a back cover for the packaging, a colour photo in multiple different forms for different uses, and a product page on Ellie's website. Before I continue, I need to differentiate our product lines. Minute Matters was the original line, which comprises mostly miniature carpets intended for use in 12th scale dollhouses. Bright Sea Village is a series of 3D designs which comprise the many buildings and a few vehicles of a fictional seaside village. Finally, there are a few other designs, some flat, some 3D, that fall outside these main product lines, including a keepsake pyramid and a floppy frog. Affinity Photo long ago replaced Photoshop for all the work on photos. For 2D designs, the needs are fairly simple, usually starting with a scan of the finished item. This is cleaned up, cross-stitch projects are notoriously never square when completed, and output in various sizes for the different uses. I also combine these later with a scan of the completed front cover, which itself contains one of the photos, to use as the main product shot on the website and internet auction sites. For the Bright Sea Village designs, we take two photos showing all sides and one square on the front, which is used on the website catalog page. I put all of these into a single document that I have evolved to produce most of the required variations of output by means of turning layers on and off. I still need to produce some two-up variations separately, but these are simple combinations of output from the main file. Next comes the fun part, though it wasn't always fun. In the very early days I used Adobe InDesign which I had access to via my employer. When I lost that access I had to resort to Apple's Pages. It ceased to be any kind of fun, but rather a battle every time I wanted to do something different. The fun finally returned, in good measure, when Serif released Affinity Publisher. In Publisher, I create the suite of documents which all end up as PDFs for ease of printing. These are placed in a shared folder from where Ellie prints them out on a laser printer, accepting the photos which are printed on a colour inkjet, and assembles the packages. A package is based on a DLE-sized envelope. On the front is stuck the front cover, which comprises a standard branding sheet printed on coloured paper, underlying the product nameplate with some basic design info, underlying the product photo. On the back is the back cover, which has information on the materials needed to complete the design, and inside are the pattern, key, and in the case of Brightsea Village products, a large colour photo insert. Each of the PDF documents I create is multi-up, in that I include multiple copies of each element on a single A4 sheet for printing. Six front covers or six back covers or typically a dozen or more photos in a single sheet. In pages, this meant creating one of the six, getting it checked and then copying and pasting five more. Affinity Publisher theoretically needs the same approach. 
Affinity Designer has a feature called Symbols, which allow you to take any object or group of objects to use as the basis of a symbol. You can then create copies of that symbol elsewhere in your document and editing of any copy reflects changes in all of the others. With Affinity's Studio Link feature, I can quickly switch Publisher into Designer mode, select my text frame group, create a symbol from it, and then make five copies of that symbol. Switching back to Publisher mode, I can edit any one of the six frames and all of them update in real time. In practice, I always create new documents from the previous design, so I don't even need to switch to designer mode. Just edit what's on the page, and they all stay in sync. The most work goes into the key, and Affinity Publisher has paid dividends here too, as anything I can imagine to put on the page is possible. The key can contain, in some Bright Sea Village designs, up to 40 different colours. These are arranged into a two-column table which lists the pattern symbol, colour number and colour name. This is where the text expander snippets come into play. Using the original Easy Cross key as a guide, I populate my table first with the colour numbers, triple checking them before I move on to the names. The names are easy because where I see 334 in the number column, I simply type DMC334 in the name column and pale indigo blue appears as if by magic. The symbols come last. These are each a small GIF that I cut from the EasyCross symbol picker and have named based on a grid system. As I base all new documents on previous designs, as much as possible I try to reuse the symbols already in the document. Next I go through and insert the missing ones, but these appear at their default size of 2.2mm square and I need them to be 4.2mm square. A very useful feature of Affinity Publisher is I can select all the images that need resizing, select Resize individually in the toolbar, then resize them all in one go. There are a couple of other text frames with additional design information, some boilerplate text, a copyright statement and a website address. I sometimes have to shuffle these around to fit everything on the page, including having to squeeze up the main table if there are 40 colours. I've never yet had to go past the single page, which is useful not only to save on printing costs, but also because there is a second page to all keys. This second page contains a series of stitching methods, each with a diagram. I used to have a PDF of this page and after producing a new key PDF I would drop the second page in by means of Preview or PDF Pen Pro. Of course I would always forget this step. Ellie used to think I was testing her proofreading skills but sometimes she'd find a small error months later and I would correct the error and then forget to add back the second page. Affinity Publisher has another great feature for this. You can place all sorts of things in Affinity documents including images as for the stitch symbols and other Affinity documents. I have a separate publisher document containing the stitching methods and for each key I place this on a blank second page completely covering it. This is a linked asset, so every time I export a PDF of a key document, Publisher automatically includes the content of the stitching methods document. 
Once all this is created and checked, production begins with the assembly of many packages simply by printing out the PDFs in quantity and gluing covers and inserting patterns and keys and photo inserts where required. All future production of the design is solely reliant on the PDFs too. Meanwhile, the Affinity documents live in a carefully crafted set of directories on my Mac, and when the next pattern is ready, I start by copying a complete set and then go about editing them to reflect the new design. I've left out any detail on how I get them on the website because it's quite complex and some of it was created so long ago, I'm not sure I know how it actually works anymore. We use WordPress with some third-party plugins and a few of my own customizations, including using PayPal merchant services to act as a shopping cart and payment processor. Now that I have honed my processes with the Affinity suite of products, I no longer dread the process as much. Though meticulous checking is never fun and, it seems, never 100% successful. Well, I don't care if it's successful or not, Alistair. I love listening to your voice, and I hate having my voice heard immediately after yours. But I love the combination of nerdery with the Affinity Suite combined with crafting. Turns out there's a lot of uh, uh, crafty people who listen to the Nocilla cast. And uh, even Kevin uh, Big in Virginia is saying he knows what DMC uh, floss is. So this was definitely appropriate, and it proves that no good deed goes unpunished by mentioning something cool you had to do a review. You know what, it's, it, look at the, the blog post for this, guys, because it's really worth it to see the delightful little houses that uh, Ellie cross-stitches and the kits that they make together to, to really appreciate how cool the work that, uh, that they both do on this project. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. Boy, we had a uh, we had a, a marathon session last week, huh? We, we did indeed. Uh, I wasn't sure what you were going to brand this this uh, separate recording, but yeah, we can call that a security a security bits. Yeah, well, even if it is singular, it's a bit. Yeah, this is a security bit. I asked Bart if he could explain the latest, uh, what is it called, ODOH that I've been hearing about and uh, in in the news, and I thought maybe it'd be a good segment for separate security bits for this holiday week. Indeed. So our good friends over at Cloudflare, in conjunction with our good friends over at Apple, and with people that you probably don't know, but they sponsor many podcasts I love, a hosting company called Fastly. Um, they have developed an improvement and addition to the DNS over HTTPS or DOH specification that we have talked about quite a few times in recent months. Ah, um, okay. And so they have released the spec. So they've defined the protocol. They've released the spec and they've released some sample implementations of the various components in both Ruby and Go, which are two programming languages we have never touched in our um, programming by stealth, um, okay. and neither of which I can write. Uh, but anyway, they, they have released the details. So this is the start of what will one day, hopefully soon, be a really good answer for DNS to give us everything we want from our DNS service. From a security perspective or from an everything perspective? For, for everything I can think of. Um, although, frankly, the biggest problem with DNS is security because actually we'll, we're going to describe the problem to be solved 
but really we need to start with a little bit of history. So the protocol, the, the whole point of DNS is to act as a translation layer between things humans can remember and things computers need. And that's actually quite a lot of different things because people think DNS is about turning domain names into IP addresses, but that is just one of its tricks. It also turns the bit after the at in your email address into an email server. It tells your Windows machine where to go find the domain controller. It, I mean, it, there are lots and lots of things DNS does. It's not just turning www.bartb.ie into 37.139.7.12. But that's what everyone remembers. The point is it's always a human-friendly domain name on one side and something the computer wants on the other side. <laughs> okay. And without it, the internet could not work. And it's so fundamental to every little thing that it has to be extremely efficient or the DNS servers would fall over in a giant big heap of goo. So when DNS was invented, the focus was on making it efficient, making it snappy. And it was done in the early days of the internet when the internet... Everyone was shocked it worked at all. <laughs> no one really thought that it would be abused because everyone was so busy just making it go that the concept of someone putting effort into being malicious just didn't compute. If Those were such fun. adorable times. They really were. And most of the protocols invented in those adorable times are gone. Right? We don't telnet. We don't FTP. But we do sell DNS heavily. So... Rather than replacing DNS, like we replaced Telnet with SSH, we replaced FTP with Secure FTP, we have incrementally tweaked at DNS rather than outright replacing it. And so this original, very, very efficient DNS had three fundamental problems in terms of our privacy and security. So problem number one is there was no authenticity which means when you got an answer, so you made a DNS query and you got an answer, you had no way to know whether that answer was altered in transmit and in transit, right? You just have no way to know if a man in the middle just changed the answer. Okay, Therefore, so redirecting you, you typed you. in bartb.ie, but the man in the middle changed the IP address and sent it back with the incorrect answer, and you're actually looking at fake bartb.ie. Yeah, which for bartb.ie is not that much of a problem, but for paypal.com potentially a huge problem, especially if fakepaypal.com has a really convincing looking, you know, clone of real paypal.com, right. then you could easily be tricked into entering your username and password into a malicious site. So the lack of authenticity is definitely a problem. Secondary to that is a lack of confidentiality. So the entire DNS protocol is plain text. So anyone in the middle, which is your ISP and the entire internet infrastructure, can see not only what you're asking, but also what the answers are. So the, ev everything is in plain text in, in the DNS protocol. So that's no confidentiality. There's also no anonymity. Everyone in the whole chain doesn't just know what's being asked for. They also know who's asking. Okay. By who so, they know your IP address. Your IP address, exactly. They don't know it's Bart, yeah, yeah, but they know that it came from wherever your IP address is located. Correct. They, okay. they know, in fact, to the IP address where it came from. And because at a networking level, right, who is your IP address? Your, your IP address is you. You are your IP address for the purposes of this conversation. Right. Um, we are not lawyers. We will not answer questions about how else that might be interpreted. Exactly. So those are three fairly major problems. And they were not attacked in one go. 
obviously the biggest, scariest problem is a lack of authenticity. So that was what everyone fixated on for quite some time. And the answer there is DNSSEC, which is an addition of DNS where we have digital signatures being attached to DNS records. So if you own a domain, you can choose to publish your public key. Um, and those public keys are signed through a whole chain of trust. Public, you know, we have a whole PKI for, for doing that. So you as the domain owner would digitally sign your DNS records. And while everything is still happening in plain text, the answer that would come would be bartb.ie is at this IP address and here's the digital signature of this message. And then the recipient could verify that the answer had not been altered in transit. Okay. Now, would everybody do that or just important sites? In theory, we all could. In reality, the .gov domain, I think, is fully signed now by mandate of Congress. Um, so it, it is rolling out, but it is very much a work in progress. And the simple answer is bartb.ie does not have DNSSEC, and I don't think podv.com does either. <laughs> it only would if you taught me how to do it. So, uh, But what about the PayPal's and the Banks of America? and They, they all have the ability to. Um, and the great thing is our OSs all have the ability to actually validate DNSSEC these days, because in the early days of DNSSEC, it was a very hypothetical exercise because the browser wouldn't know how to validate the secure response. Okay. So, all right. So we go, oh, okay, you're saying that's at this IP address. All right, then. I don't know what this other garbage is. I don't know what to do with that. Digital what now? <laughs> <laughs> but that's all gone. So modern version of Windows, modern version of Mac OS X, modern versions of Linux, they can all validate DNSSEC uh, signatures. So any domain where it's really important that it be safe can be made safe through DNSSEC. And the .gov domain is entirely signed. Um, And it is rolling out. It is becoming a thing that you you have DNSSEC. So that takes care of the authenticity problem. Work in progress, but the actual technology is mature. Okay. So it's It's not fully rolled out, but it is mature. It's all figured out. It's all figured out. The next thing that people tried to deal with was the confidentiality issue. That was considered the next most important. And really, it's only recently that that has has become all figured out. And the winner is DNS over HTTPS or DOH, which is now a standard feature in Firefox. Um, You have support in Windows, Mac, Linux. So that has finally gotten reasonable adoption with Firefox really pushing it as a default if you don't choose otherwise. So that's not something that the websites have to enable like DNSSEC. No. So the first problem is a problem for the owners of domains. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to publish the records in such a way that people can validate them. Now the problem is with those of us who are doing the looking up. Now you could argue we care about authenticity as well, but we're, we're completely switching our focus now from the point of view of we are a user of the internet and we need to make DNS queries and get DNS answers. Okay. And so this is, or this is a pet peeve of mine. When, the, when DNS was invented, there are two very, 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 very different things which someone thought we should both call DNS servers. <laughs> Which confuses the bejesus set of most people. So you and I pay a hosting provider to host an authoritative DNS server on our behalf. And that authoritative DNS server, in my case, is Hover.com, and in your case, is not. Um, I don't remember who your, hosting, who your DNS is at the moment, but I do know it's not Hover, for very good reasons. 
Um, we are paying someone to run a DNS server whose job it is is to publish to the world the DNS records for bartb.ie and potv.com. So that is an authoritative DNS server. Its job is to advertise. Okay. You and I, as regular internet users, we need a DNS server for the opposite problem. We need to, our computers need to be able to ask the internet what the answer is. What is Google's IP address? Well, you know, I go to google.com to go search for something. What IP address do I go to? I want to go to podfeet.com. What IP address do I go to? So our OSs get a configuration from our DHCP servers, which tell it to use our router as the first port of call, but our router doesn't know the answer either. So our router has gotten some DHCP stuff from our ISP, or we've programmed in 1.1.1.1 or 8.8.8.8. But there is a server somewhere that is, whose job it is, and the actual name for this type of DNS server is a DNS resolver, and its job is to take questions and figure out the answer. So for the entire rest of this conversation, when I say DNS server, what I mean is a DNS resolver. Okay. So it's a All server right. whose job it is to look up the answer on right. our behalf. Which I think is the and one most people think of most of the is. time anyway. Okay. Unless you're in my line of work, where one of my core responsibilities in work is managing our DNS infrastructure, and then I have both hats on all the time. <laughs> because we have thousands yourself? of people on campus, in theory, um, who need to look up things, and we have many domains we own, which we need to advertise. So we have both. I have both hats. But anyway. So... From the point of view of us as the regular home users, everything we do online, be it chatting with someone over Discord, be it browsing the web, be it having a Skype call, be it sending an email, every single thing, every app that uses the internet to sync stuff, it is all using DNS because it all involves translating server names to IP addresses so that you can actually communicate. Okay. So... If someone were to be able to watch all of your DNS traffic, they could see an awful lot about what you were doing online. They couldn't see the content, but they would know who your bank is. They couldn't, they couldn't look into your web browsing to the bank because you have HTTPS to protect the content of your conversation with the bank, but they could see that you were going to the bank. They could see who your doctor is if you go to your doctor's website or if you send your doctor an email. Or your insurance so you can act- company or, or <sighs> looking up symptoms. Yeah, exactly. So they, there is an awful, awful, awful lot of information leaked out through DNS queries. It is a massive source of information. And unfortunately, in jurisdictions where there is not a lot of privacy regulation, it has become a revenue stream. Well, yeah, there, as you were saying that, I was thinking, why doesn't Facebook just use that? I mean, well, because we would have to trust Facebook as our DNS server and we don't. However, <laughs> many, many, many American ISPs use DNS as a revenue stream. Okay. They sell it to advertisers because mm-hmm. that way they can charge lower premiums for your internet access because they just sell all your DNS records. And something a lot of people don't realize is a lot of, in order to stop VPNs breaking stuff like access to your printer, a lot of VPNs root DNS around the VPN. So your DNS queries could still be leaking out because otherwise everything on the LAN vanishes if all DNS is rooted. Now, a lot of modern VPNs are getting cleverer about it where they're using one DNS server for stuff that's on the LAN and one DNS server for everything else. But it is a thing where a lot of... Just because you're using a VPN doesn't mean that your DNS is going through it is basically the bottom line. 
Okay. And it's all plain text. This is the problem. So no confidentiality. Right. And the solution there is very straightforward. DNS over HTTPS. Create an HTTPS connection between either your browser and a DNS server that supports the DOH or between your computer and such a server or between your router and such a server, depending on where you configure it. And then instead of, so the, the same DNS packets that are completely unencrypted, instead of going over the internet, they just go through that HTTP connection, sorry, HTTPS connection, and therefore they're secured. Foom, problem solved. You just encrypt them as they travel. But there are, so DOH has been rolled out and it is supported, but there are not a lot of DOH servers. So what we've ended up doing is consolidating this DNS trove of information into a small number of very heavily used endpoints. (laughs) So those are either a massive target for attack or a gigantic temptation for a company that starts to run a bit low on revenue that is hosting one of these. I would think it's also a gigantic opportunity for some small typo to cause, you know, the 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 uh, eastern seaboard yeah. to go down. Yes, yeah, yes, you're right. It's it's a resilience problem. It's a potential privacy problem. It's a huge, 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 re- you know, auga, auga, attack me, attack me. Mm-hmm. It's a constant, constant temptation for sh- cranky shareholders to insist it starts being monetized. It is just dangerous on many levels to have all of this information so concentrated. So we don't like DOH. Well, last we like it better. It's awesome. (laughs) We like it better than what we had before, but we've just realized that what we thought was the the answer to life, the universe, and everything is is just a step towards the actual answer to the problem. Because you got to watch what you motivate people to do. You do. So. This is the point in t- this is the point at which the guys in Cloudflare, Fastly and Apple went off for a we think. And that's what they have proposed an extremely clever solution to, which is just a small addition to DOH. It doesn't throw DOH away. DOH is almost there. It just needs a little bit more help and they have come up with a very simple solution, which they are calling oblivious DNS over HTTPS. <laughs> Oblivious dough. <laughs> oblivious dough. And what it does is it separates out the task of doing the looking up and the task of telling the person who asked the question. Hmm. Which means that at no point in a an ODOH chain is there one component which knows both who and what. Oh. So the resolver knows it has to look up podfeet.com. And what we, what they have called the proxy knows it has to tell the answer to Bart, or where are the Bart's Bart's home IP address? Okay, but because but of end to end encryption, correct. So the proxy only knows who asked a question and where to forward the question to. But the question is encrypted as it passes through the proxy, and the resolver only it can decrypt the question, but all it knows is it was handed it by the proxy. So it doesn't actually know the true author of the question. So it can answer the question, encrypt the answer, hand the encrypted answer back to the proxy, and then the proxy hands it back to the actual client. So the proxy doesn't know what you're talking about, and the resolver doesn't know who's asking. 
problem is clever. solved. It's extremely clever. The, we- the potential weak point is, were there to be a situation where the proxy and the resolver colluded? Hmm. Because then, if they were colluding with each other, they both have all the information, so they could piece it back together if they were to go into collusion with each other. So the protocol has been designed in such a way that you, the user, get to choose both. So the way it works is, if you want to use a resolver like 1.1.1.1, then 1.1.1.1 would publish its public key. So you would use the public key for 1.1.1.1 to encrypt your DNS query, and you would hand that to a proxy of your choosing, and you know that that proxy has no choice but to hand it to 1.1.1.1 because because you've used its public key, the only thing on planet Earth that can decrypt that is the owner of the matching private key, which is 1.1.1.1. So the proxy cannot misdirect your request. No matter how malicious the proxy is, it can't send it to anyone else. It has to send it where you told it to. So that so 1.1.1.1 is Cloudflare. Flare. And mm-hmm. so you're saying, I don't trust Cloudflare to not have these two servers collude with each other. Therefore, I'm going to make it Google's 8.8.8.8 for the other server? I would. It doesn't have to be someone running a DNS resolver. I think what's likely to happen is we may have organizations like the EFF or like Firefox running proxies oh. and organizations like Google and Cloudflare running resolvers. Okay. Will and that so be you as would fast then as say, it is now? Pardon? Will that be as fast as it is right now? The, a massive part of the blog post announcing ODOH is basically going into great mathematical detail about how little overhead this adds. Okay. Okay. And how efficiently they've written this protocol. So at least my instinct was right to ask the question. Your instinct was absolutely <laughs> right because it, it is obviously slower, but not by much. Okay. So the, the, it's a very efficient implementation. So you as a user would then suddenly the permutations go right up, right? Because you as a user now get to pick two things. You say, well, actually, I think the EFF will be a good proxy for me. And while I don't trust Google as far as they could throw them, they're actually really efficient. So why don't I use 8.8.8.8 as my actual resolver? And I don't have to trust Google anymore because all they know is someone who uses the EFF wants to know. That's uh-huh. not a lot of information. How does, how does Apple fold into this? Did they just help they're- figure it out? Apple and the engineers from Apple, Fastly, and Cloudflare designed this. Okay. So we don't have detail about the exact division of labor. What Mm -hmm. we know is in in the announcement of the protocol, those are the three companies that say they work together. So this would anger everybody who wants to take our data and track us, right? Correct, but they're already cranky at us because at the moment, the DOH endpoints are the same people who want to protect, who, who, who have who are going around trying to prevent tracking? Okay. So they're all re- so the people who have pushed DOH are the same people who are incentivized to push ODOH. The people who hate DOH are the same people who will hate ODOH. So the battle hasn't changed. It's just oh, okay. that the proposed solution has gotten way better. So normal people aren't going to do any of this. No, it's just like, like normal people haven't on- done DOH. But but. DOH was the burden was on the people creating the websites. No, that was DNSSEC. Ah, nuts. Keeping these straight. So with DOH, the reason DOH is now heavily in use is because it became the default on Firefox. 
Okay. Okay. So that same solution is open to us right here. So you're but saying Firefox oh, would partner with two organizations instead of with one. Oh, was this the thing where Firefox all of a sudden was putting in uh, a DNS for us? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, and while that annoyed me because I wanted to p- pick my own because I'd chosen Cloudflare, which you can, and, by the way. It, yeah, but I had to know that that. Firefox had done that in order to know to fix it to what I wanted. But if I'm just, uh, you know, Sally Smith out on the internet, uh, you know, doing my physics research, I don't care. I want that just Correct. to work for me. And so that's how why Firefox was a big help in that. Correct. Which basically okay. meant that f- by, by Firefox changing their default, the amount of plain text DNS packets on planet Earth went down by whatever Firefox's market share is. So we'll say it went down by a quarter. Okay. This is a reason we want Firefox to thrive, isn't it? It is, absolutely. One of the re- Yes, absolutely. There are other reasons too, like it's just good to have some diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you're right. This is another one of the reasons we want Firefox to thrive. And Firefox being a charitable foundation makes it different to the other free browsers. Right, right. Uh, does Safari do any of this? Safari definitely has DOH support. Mac OS has DOH support. I don't remember off the top of my head whether they're defaulting to it. I know Chrome did some very clever defaulting where Chrome basically detects whether or not you are on a corporate network. And if you're on a corporate network, DOH is a bad idea because DOH won't know the answers to your private corporate stuff. Right. Um, but if so you're, Chrome but is doing if some if you're using stuff. Safari uh, in the future when no DOH is, is de rigueur, you would have to go I, I would think system preference would system preferences network settings would have to change where you had a place for the proxy and for the resolver right Separate. but i would imagine since apple are one of the partners here that safari's default settings are very likely to do a firefox and default to odoh unless you choose not to in okay. fact apple are exactly the kind of company who could run a proxy Hmm. Yeah, okay. Oh, so maybe Safari itself would just say, I'm going to use this proxy from Apple, but then in, uh, in network the drop settings, down, you would just choose your, your DNS resolver. Yeah, that okay. would be exactly, that would be a way to do it. Or they okay. could give you two drop downs so that you could say, by default, you're using Apple as your proxy, but maybe you'd like the EFF yeah. or maybe, you know, whoever else ends up doing this. So can we have so, it now? Can we have it now? Can we have it now? If you're nerdy enough, yes. Oh, wow. Because the the source code is out there and 1.1.1.1 is ODOH ready. So if you get the source code for a proxy, you run a VM in the cloud somewhere that is a proxy, and you configure, you then run the client version on, say, you're maybe you're running a PFSense router or something, so you, you, you stick on the extra code, and then you configure everything in your house to use your hacked-together DNS server that you've gotten from the open-source stuff that has been published, then absolutely positively you can have ODOH right now with 1.1.1.1 as a resolver and your own proxy. Okay, so we'll wait a little while then. Yes, I think we will wait a little while until it becomes a default. It's the kind of thing I would really hope would end up in, in the, the, the open source router firmwares like um, DDWRT or whatever it is, the Derigur uh-huh. these days, or um, the, the one I love, um, PFSense. Because um, PFSense does, does DOH at the moment, which is great, which is why I, so I have DOH at the router level instead of at the browser level, which means it captures every, it protects everything in our house, which is great. Okay. And that will become ODOH in the future. 
Well, this is cool. I, I think uh, you did a great job of uh, breaking it down for us. And uh, this is one of those things that I really like. You do such great show notes with full explanations because as of this instant in time, I know exactly how this works. And next week, if I said it, I still remembered it, I would be lying. So I go back to refer to your notes and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what that one was. <laughs> See, and I love the fact that they're on your website forever because I then get to go back to them too when I'm trying to remember it. Because I know I figured it out well enough to describe it once. So if I read it again, it'll come straight back to me, but I will have to read it again. And my favorite part is I go searching for stuff on Google and the, I find the answer on my own website where maybe I wrote it. <laughs> I, I, that happens to me more often than I care to admit. Or you go to Google and all the links are purple instead of blue. It's like, huh. <laughs> I've had this problem before, I see. And then you, you go to Stack Overflow and you see that you have a tick on the up arrow. It's in green. Oh, and I upvoted this one too. Look at that. <laughs> well, that must be the right one. It's very helpful. <laughs> that is true. All right. Well, that is going to close us out on Security Bits for uh, for 2020. Good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> in all ways. So uh, I guess we'll talk to you again next year. You will indeed, but of course, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, I want to thank everybody again who uh, helped make this show happen. This was this was really fantastic. Thank you again to Lewis and Frank and Jill and Alistair. And next week, believe it or not, Jill has a, a week in the life of an Apple Watch, kind of like the day in the life of an Apple Watch that I did before. And uh, I believe Jeff Butts is going to come in with something about the Connecticut Raspberry Pi Extreme. Hope he comes through with that. And Caleb Fong has something he's cooking up and he's always great for a good review so i think we're gonna have a lot of fun next week and i don't plan on doing a whole lot of work between uh now and the new year but that is going to wind us up for this week don't forget to send in your dumb questions you must have dumb questions about your new toys you got for christmas new applications something you think everybody else already knows but you just don't know yet that's what qualifies as a dumb question you can send those in to by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com and you can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast? You go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to maybe do a one-time donation? You would do that by going to podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the conversation with everybody in the uh, NoSilla castaways, you can do it in one of two places. You can do it in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack, and you can do it in our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, we're delighted that Kevin is finally back full-time to uh, monitor me and tell me what I'm doing wrong during the live show. Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.